and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast titled C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. You may recognize my voice and my mug from being the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller, where for the last four years, I've been privileged with this great production team to have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of the biggest names in industry and business, including best-selling authors, business titans, researchers, celebrities, sometimes government officials, usually retired, and also people that may not be a household name that did something particularly heroic. They survived a trauma. They researched something that could help all of our lives. And after millions and millions and millions of views and listens, what we learned is sometimes the most compelling, shared, liked, reviewed episodes weren't the big Hollywood star. It was often the times, someone like you and I, someone that had had a, a, a steady road to success and that they had very identifiable, relatable, and even replicable lessons in their career. And today, our guest is just that such person. His name is Roger Crone. He is the chairman and CEO at Lidos. That may not be a household name, but it's certainly well known in the, in the industry of um, business and what they do in the Fortune 5000 world. And so, Roger, welcome today to C-Suite Conversations. Great. Thanks, Scott. We're, uh, we're thrilled to be here. Roger, delighted that you've taken some time today from your office in Virginia. We're going to take a broad view of your career, some of the things that Lidos is doing that other companies might want to be aware of in terms of creating culture, what you all do in terms of passion projects, your view on hiring and retaining talent. And we'll even talk about how sometimes being boring is actually a leadership asset and competency. What I'd like you to do first, Roger, is rewind a couple of decades. Would you take us through your academic history and perhaps some of the big career pivots that led to you becoming now the chairman and CEO at Lidos? Yeah, sure, Scott. I, I, I'd be glad to. First of all, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, my dad uh, was in World War II, uh, was a bombardier on B-29s. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, kind of aerospace was the, you know, the high-tech uh, industry of the era. My dad was really interested in airplanes and aerospace. And I kind of got that bug. So I got a uh, aerospace engineering degree uh, in the 70s uh, from Georgia Tech, and I wanted to go uh, design and build airplanes. And so I had the, the privilege of uh, getting on a program called the F-16, a jet fighter program at the time, and uh, was able to do design work and uh, practice, if you will, my craft. I got a couple of graduate degrees along the way, and uh, success led to success, uh, bigger projects, more responsibility, eventually management, um, and uh, was at a company that got bought by Boeing. So that became even bigger and uh, larger, more diverse portfolio. I got involved in space. I got involved in some of the Intel, kind of broader government technology. And uh, that's where I was when in 2014, you know, I got a, a call that said, uh, would you consider uh, leaving your current job? So I was like a group president at Boeing and being the CEO for this government technology company, uh, named Lidos. And I had done uh, a lot of different things in the industry. I had done a tour of duty in finance. And so I had a broad background, but I had aspired to be a public company CEO. And at that time, uh, Lidos was about 5 billion. 
And so I thought it was a small enough company that I could make the transition and be successful. And so in 2014, I left uh, Boeing and and came to Lidos. And uh, it's been kind of a a lot of fun and kind of a a wild ride uh, since. But I am essentially a technology person with a design and engineering background and then some experience in finance and management. So Roger, I've had the privilege and the responsibility of being a named executive officer in a public company. I am no longer. Who aspires to be the CEO of a public company post Sarbanes Oxley? Tell me what led you, what was the appeal of being the CEO of a public company in particular? Um, well, there's got to be some ignorance to it, right? Because you know, there wasn't you know, socks and, and, and perhaps you know, when you aspire and you think about when you do your career, you don't really understand kind of all the administrative side and the complication side of public shareholders and derivative lawsuits and things like that. But it really was the, I think, the opportunity to leverage my skills and ability uh, to do something bigger and something more important and to contribute you know, in my chosen area, yeah, I'm a member of the National Academy. We think a lot about engineering and making the world, frankly, a, a, a better place, a safer place. And I just felt as the CEO, by the way, and the public company allows you to fuel growth. It gives you access to capital markets. It uh, gives you more flexibility, I think, uh, to broaden the company and to become more global. Uh, I think private companies, you know, it's a good model to have a private company. I just think what you can do with a public company is bigger and broader. Uh, and, you know, it was, you know, again, I, I grew up in the Midwest and my heroes, I guess, were CEOs of public companies as I was kind of growing up and looking in the aerospace industry, if you recall, the companies tend to be named for the CEOs and the founders. That's so. Right. You know, Bill Boeing and Jack Northrop and the Lockheed brothers, and you know, it goes on and on and on. And they, they were running public companies. Uh, Mr. McDonald, I was at McDonald Douglas for a period of time, and so it, it just seemed like, from a structural standpoint, that was the best way to drive growth. And um, uh, I thought I would enjoy interacting with the investment community and our shareholders and spending time on Wall Street. That's a great answer. Roger, you and I have something in common, and that is that both of our fathers, in your case, your father worked in the military, and my father worked for a military contractor, and we share that in common. What we don't share in common is that um, I did not go on to get an aerospace engineering degree by any stretch. My brother became a chemical engineer, but your path is very interesting in that you've learned a lot about aerospace. I mean, on a lighter note, could you fly an airplane if you were on a 777 and both pilots became, or all three of them became incapacitated? Could you go up to the cockpit and get it safely to the ground? Yeah, well, I am a commercial pilot. So I got my license uh, when I was 18. I've uh, been flying literally nonstop. Um, I currently own a, a, a twin airplane today. In fact, I've got a trip scheduled to Asheville this weekend. So, um, and at Boeing, I had the opportunity to fly a 737. So, yeah, I feel like if, you know, if I was in the back and, you know, I could probably at least get the airplane back on, on the runway. But, you know, one of the real successes in my career is to be able to get alignment between uh, my career aspirations and the things that I'm passionate about, and I was always passionate about aerospace and flying, and then be able to do that 
you know, my avocation and my vocation are almost completely overlapped. So I'd, I'd, I'd be real comfortable with the flying part. I don't know about, you know, I could do the astronaut piece, but I could do the flying part. It's, it's, you're, you're right in that everyone hopes they can get their avocation and vocation at least, if not exactly matched, overlapped in some fashion. Hey, so because I did not get an aerospace engineering degree, will you wind down a little bit of the description of what Lidos does? Kind of talk to me as a non-aerospace engineer. What's your mission and, and what's the day-to-day -day focus look like at Lidos? Yeah, well, you know, the elevator uh, sentence is, think of us as a government technology company, All right? So uh, we have different divisions that operate in civil and defense and the intelligence community and, and in healthcare. But we have grown bigger than just doing military or DOD or just aerospace to where we are trying to apply you know, technology, engineering, and science to kind of make the world a better place. We, we talk about it being uh, safer, healthier, and more efficient. Uh, but we're, we're, we try to build a product capability or a service using technology and apply it to a problem that is inherently governmental. And there are just certain issues in dealing with the federal government that drive the way you structure a company. And we are uniquely selling to the government. We have about 15, 20% that's commercial, but but our infrastructure, our accounting system is focused on, on the government. And, and so we run the gamut from most people on this call will recognize our name, but we run a system called ProVision. We have 100% market share at airports. So when you go through the, the personal uh, uh, check area and you go to what we call secondary, the thing where you have to raise your hands and that's a millimeter wave radar. That's a ProVision system. We built that. And in fact, you'll find our, our, our brand on that. And that's a very complicated hardware and software product where we take a millimeter wave radar and a lot of algorithms and we can actually interrogate a person and find objects in pockets. I mean, that's what uh, that system does. So we, we do that. And then we, for instance, uh, we make the food for the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, space program. In fact, we have run the food lab at Johnson Space Center since the beginning of the astronaut program. So we have made all the food for all of the astronauts since the early 1960s. And then just to give you, a, you know, kind of another bookend, uh, we operate... Uh, the U.S. presence on Antarctica. Uh, so we, we like to talk about we have some of the longest supply chains in the world, but we do everything on the ice except the actual scientific research, which is done by principal investigators. And so we have found a way to establish human habitation, food recreation, in an environment where it can be minus 100 degrees uh, uh, in the winter. And so it's a broad set of, we think, very interesting, very important work that's driven by technology. Roger, in the, in the context of Jim Collins' seminal book, Good to Great, right, and the, the hedgehog and the flywheel and getting really clear on 
what you were the best at in the world. Why would a, uh, a government contractor like Lidos, who's obviously you know, building security systems and making the world a safer place, as you say, why would you be providing food to astronauts? Is it for a security issue there? Or why is that something that your company would spend time? It seems at first blush to be a little bit arcane. You know, it's a technology issue. Is uh, I, and I've I've had a chance to go to the lab a couple times, and of course, you know, I grew up. There, you know, we talked about Tang, and you know, it's it looks pretty straightforward and pretty simple, but the actual challenge of providing food to the International Space Station is quite complicated. You can't just go buy food and package it and send it up. Their storage requirements, their health requirements, their certain uh, calorie requirements. Um, and, and we're actually doing research on food, thinking about when we go back to the moon and we go back to Mars, how do you package food that will last years? And so in the food lab, yeah, we have ovens, but we have vacuum packers, we have freeze dryers. And so how does the food nutritional content stand up over time when it's been dehydra uh, dehydrated? And then, then how do we logistically pull this all together, put meals together, if you will, on a day-by-day -day basis, get it packaged, uh, and then get it shipped down to the Cape and get it launched, and then get it installed in the space station. And then the technology of how we reconstitute the food, how do you add the water, how do you heat it, how do you do it in a way that the food is still attractive to eat, all right, because after a while, if you've you've ever been in the military, you know, the military, what we call MREs, after the first week or two, they all taste the same. You know, and then the MREs, which we don't make, they always give you Tabasco sauce to add flavor. And so our challenge is to make the food appetizing for, because we now have people who are six months on ISS and we want them to enjoy the food experience and also get the nutrition that they need. So it's really just a really another really cool technologist. In fact, the woman who runs the food lab has you know, like a, a PhD in chemistry because she needs to understand how all of that interacts to provide the astronaut the food experience, the meal experience that they need. Fascinating, off track. Do the different nationalities eat the same cuisine every day? Uh, no, they, they don't. They can, but you know, the Russians bring Russian food. The Americans bring American food. They often share and swap. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a centrally managed program, but you will find that international astronauts want some food that's uh, more character, uh, more aligned with the country that they came yeah, from. Yeah. And, and so there is coordination done it's all packed together. It's all launched together. Uh, but the palates are different. And so, what Americans like to eat are different than what some of the international astronauts like to eat. So they all wish there was an Italian in space, clearly, right? So they could actually have Greek cuisine. Okay, let's pivot right. to the labor market for a moment. Tight labor market. I think one of the hallmarks of your firm has been you've had some quite remarkable success recently in hiring and onboarding, recruiting and retaining talent. What are some of the replicable, I know you don't want to share your secrets away, but what are some of the, what are, what's some of the appeal and what are some of the proactive strategies your organization employs to actually win in a tight labor market? Yeah, you know, we, we, we have um, talked to our employees and, and talked to the market about 
why do people come to a company? And we call it sort of the employee value proposition. And we survey our, our workforce. We have about 44,000 people in the company today. So we're always asking them, what do you like about your work? Why are you here and why are you staying? And we also survey, if you will, the, the, the market. And uh, it's interesting. We found that four things seem to drive where, where people work. Uh, first and foremost, I would say the actual work. What people get to do, you know, after they've gone through new employee orientation, what they, you know, what what is their work content? And especially today, if people are not excited or not passionate or not enjoying their work, uh, then uh, then they will leave. And the mobility in the workforce today, you know, post COVID is unprecedented. Uh, that's that's number one. The nature of the work we find now. The number two reason is mobility and flexibility of how you actually accomplish the work. And clearly this has moved up in priorities as uh, companies and the employee base have uh, managed through COVID and found out that you can write computer code in your basement and be relatively efficient. And so as a company, you know, we think we've got great things to do we have changed our HR policies so that we have a we have a very very aggressive work at home mobility flexibility program where we can offer in most cases there are clearly structural reasons why we may not be able to offer every job in a, in, in a mobile offering but we become much more flexible about where the work gets done how the work gets done and where the eight hours in a day. Uh, reside in the clock. So, you know, nine to five, you know, is not a big issue with us. If you want to work in the afternoon, if you want to work in the morning, that's fine with us. If you want to break it into two, four hour increments, that's fine with us. The only thing we require is that you input your time uh, every day. And then the last two reasons, uh, professional development. So people want to go to companies that are growing, that are hiring, that are creating new opportunities for people who go to that company. And then the last uh, employee value proposition that, that uh, we have found is important is the, the people that you work with, the nature of the work, the team, pretty much everything we do uh, today, we do in teams, you know, the idea of an individual, you know, designing an airplane or a new, you know, computer system. It just doesn't happen anymore. So the ability to interact with world-class experts in your field is really, really important. And we think at, at Lidos, we've got that. And our track record of, of attracting, hiring, and retaining, I think, demonstrates uh, that we've done that. Uh, last year, we hired uh, 12,000 people. And, uh, you know, we will, we're on pace, maybe not do quite as many this year, but we'll probably hire over 10,000 people this year. Roger, that was a fascinating overview of what is, in many cases, a replicable, you know, work culture. I'm guessing it's a little more restrictive when you've got uh, security clearances working from home and, you know, and now uh, this kind of flexible time where, where your eight hours spends less, what that you do is more important than when you do. Has that been driven primarily by the pandemic and the new demands of the workforce 
post-pandemic, hopefully we're post-pandemic, was that something that was starting beforehand? Talk about what you've learned along that journey of probably disrupting what was a fairly consistent culture where everybody drove in or trained in or biked in and you were there in the office for, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. What was the path to this new reality of work like for you and for the company? Yeah, great. Well, let, let me level set the audience that although Lidos today is a public company and we're 53 years old, the first 40 years, we were employee-owned. So, uh, and that has created a culture inside our company that is it is still today, I think, very, very different. And it's, it's one where uh, the employee is paramount. Uh, what they think, what they care about is very, very important, important to me. And we have a very active, very vocal, very communicative workforce who is uh, not shy to communicate with management what's important to them and what they would desire in the workplace environment. So COVID, we sort of learned two things. Um, we learned what we had already started to see happen, which is the millennial you know, and the Gen Zers wanted better work-life balance and that meant more mobility and flexibility in how they get their work done. And we had put in telework programs and remote sites uh, prior to COVID. So we were moving in that direction, you know, the number of probably 15, 20% of our employee base did some of their work you know, uh, away from the office. And then the second half, which I think COVID drove, COVID taught our middle management layer that we could get the work done in a much more remote, uh, mobile, flexible environment. You know, I when I started work, I literally punched a time card. You know, I had to be at work at eight. I, you know, I had to stay till five. I got half an hour off. And that's the way many of the middle managers that uh, are in our company were raised and that we, we had group meetings in person, we had team meetings in person. And because of COVID, and you know, we shut down all of our buildings in March of 2020, but we still had work that had to get done. And I think we all learned to let go of old antiquated ideas about how you have to manage and we proved to ourselves that we could manage in this hybrid environment. And even you know, people who've been in this industry since the 70s, like me, right, learned I could get most of my work done in this, this new, brave new world. And now we've held on to that post-COVID. Uh, and it's it's made our company more agile, more flexible, and it's allowed us to address a much, much broader uh, employee uh, base. I'm going to rewind to a point you made just a few moments ago where you said loosely that what's important to your employees is, an important, is important to you and to the leadership team. Um, I believe some time ago there was an employee at Lidos that lost uh, tragically one of their children to the opioid epidemic. And it's been quite public how you responded to that. And not just responded to that one individual, but responded in a quite spectacular way with the help 
and the and excitement of others around you. Will you share what I'm sure is a very tragic and tender story? Will you share how that started? And really kind of the proof is in the pudding because you actually lived the value you just expressed was important to you. Talk about where that actually took Lidos. Sure. Uh, as I said, I, I, I have 44,000 bosses at the company. And because of our culture, uh, they're very comfortable to uh, stop me at the coffee shop, grab me in the elevator, or send me an email. And you know, now it's been you know quite a few years ago. I got an email, um, and in the title it said a father's story or father's journey. And you know, I often get emails about you know the food in the cafeteria and the stripes in the parking lot. And this one was different. I start reading it. And um, this individual who worked in Pittsburgh, and if you understand the whole opioid yes. issue, it started in Portsmouth, Ohio. So Pittsburgh is ground zero of the Oxycontin um, uh, opioid problem. But uh, you know, I read the letter and and he lost his son tragically uh, to uh, an opioid overdose. And then he kind of ended it and said, Roger, 25% of our business is in healthcare. We tend to be more in the technology part of healthcare, but he says, we purport to be a healthcare company. What are we doing about the opioid epidemic? And you know, it kind of hit me in the face. I said, I didn't even know there was an opioid epidemic. Now this would have been four or five years ago. So I literally run, we were in a different building at the time. I run down the hall and I start talking to some of the staff. And I said, you know, it's really tragic that this guy's name was John. John lost his son. You know, is this a one-off? I mean, is this happening? What's an opioid? And, and we found out that in that year, I think there were 75,000 deaths in the United States attributable to Oxycontin, you know, misuse of uh, opioid, time-released opioid uh, drugs. And uh, we reached out to John. He told us more. He told us more about the problem and the depth and the breadth of the problem. And it was, and it turned out that John was not the only one. As we dug into the problem more, we found out we had more employees who had, you know, wives, sons, daughters who had had passed away. And it appeared that that very few people knew there was an epidemic and certainly corporate America uh, uh, didn't know. And, you know, so we, we actually sat down with John and we said, well, what are the, some of the things we can do? And, and we talked to our team and the health group and we actually started uh, a whole series of initiatives around the opioid e epidemic. We started a CEO pledge. By the way, we changed the way we do uh, prescription medicine in the company. Uh, it used to be that if a doctor prescribed one of our employees a 30-day uh, uh, prescription for Oxycontin, we would fill it for 30 days. Oxycontin is addictive after 10 days of use. So we cut that back. So we now will only fill a 10-day prescription at a time. After 10 days, you have to go back to your doctor. But we started a whole series of programs we did the CEO pledge. We reached out to other CEOs. We worked with a lot of not-for-profit organizations, the Community Any Drug Coalition of America, 
We worked with DEA on their DEA 360 program. We supported foundations. And now it is one of our, our major uh, thrusts within the company. And we were making progress, Scott, until COVID. And then it turned out COVID, the stress of COVID, issues around mental health, it just got worse. We were we got it down below 70,000 and then during COVID, it, it uh, jumped up over 100,000 deaths. And so we're redoubling our efforts. In fact, I was just at a uh, CADCA event uh, last week uh, where we're talking about doing some new initiatives around, around this issue. Roger, it's a remarkable story. In fact, I think there actually is a statistic of how you reduced opioid use and perhaps even addiction in your company as a result of this sort of 10-day tranche. Talk about the actual results of what it did even for your own employees. Well, you know, what we found was that, you know, because we, we can look at our claims data and our pharmaceutical data, so we know, you know, how many prescriptions for Oxycontin, Tylenol-3 are we filling. And so we were filling, you know, quite a few for 30 days, 45 days, right? And we said, well, we're going to cut it back to the 10 days, and then we'll see how many people renew for the second 10 days or the third 10 days. And it, 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 it turned out that uh, only 10% of the prescriptions came back for the second 10 days. Wow. And so what that told us was, prior to our change, that there were unused drugs in medicine cabinets right across our corporation and one of the things we learned in the opioid uh you know uh, a journey was a lot of drugs are stolen or taken out of people's medicine cabinets it could be a child it could be you know a, a plumber a domestic worker that you know they used to if somebody's going to break into your house they used to go after your jewelry cabinet now they go after your medicine cabinet because the value of those pills are, are, and their traceability, of course, are, are much more valuable than some of the jewelry you may have. And by changing our prescription program and, frankly, encouraging other corporations to do the same, we got the pills, the unused pills out of the medicine cabinet. And it's made a big difference. It's a great story, really. Kudos to you. Kudos to the culture that you and your leadership team have built to both have a direct line to the employees, perhaps the stripes on the parking lot and the lunch and food should go to somebody else. But because you built that transparency and that access, you had a real-time connection to devastating issues and look at what that's done. I think it's a great model for anybody in the C-suite or leadership around the world to take heed to. Let's finish this conversation with a little bit of your personality. You know, I think when we think of leaders, a lot of us think of perhaps very persuasive, uh, um, communicative people, big personalities, people that perhaps are extroverts. And I don't know your personality other than having the time we've spent today and some time before this. But I think about just shy of a decade ago, you did an interview with the Washington Post where your company, Lidos, was, had gone through some transition and they needed focus and discipline. And, and you quite went on record to say, sorry, people, but you're going to find me to be rather boring. I guess that was more of a leadership philosophy than personality. Talk about what that means and sometimes why it's important for CEOs to know when to play big and even when to play small. 
Well, you know, it, it, it starts, I think, with the company having been employee owned. So, and, and many people came to this company because we were employee owned, which meant empowered employees doing things that they're passionate about is the hallmark of this company. And so it was clear here that it's not about the CEO. Uh, and the best thing I can do is empower and facilitate the other, you know, 43,999 people to do their job every day. And, you know, we pick up the newspaper, you know, every morning and we read about a CEO who thought it was all about them. And, you know, I'm, I am just, I believe I am privileged to have this job. And, you know, my job is to provide technology and, you know, make changes in the world, but also to provide a great career for all of our employees. It is not about me, right? I, I had a great career before I came here. You know, I, I did some amazing things. You know, I, 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 I got to work for some great companies and I didn't want anyone to think, well, you know, Lidos, well, when we say Lidos, we're really talking Roger Crump is is that's not what i'm about and that's not what we're about here you know we're really talking about all the other the, the stakeholders and by the way you know we signed the business roundtable you know revised statement of corporate purpose right with the five stakeholders you know customers employees suppliers uh, communities and shareholders and in that statement of corporate purpose there's no ceo right you know, the, the stakeholder of the company is not the chairman, right? And, and the CEO, it's it's all those other stakeholders. And I don't I don't want to be in the press to the detriment of the people who work here and the customers that we serve. And way too often today, CEOs are in the press for all the wrong reasons. And and so I just I just as soon you know, keep my head down do my day job, uh, grow the company, create uh, new opportunities for our employees to deliver to customers. And, you know, my life is fine. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to own a sports team. I, you know, when I'm done, you know, I'll, I'll retire to the house. I'll have great uh, fun with my kids and my grandkids. And I'll turn this job over to the next person. Who will go run the company and and that's really what i'm trying to get across um there are some founder owner companies right which where it's we read about it every day we're, we're we're not talking about the company we're talking about that person and i don't think that model works well here uh it might work well in other companies but uh but i i think i would have a tougher road to hoe if people felt it was about roger this has been a master class in leadership. Roger Crone, CEO and Chairman of Lidos, thanks for your time today. Very, uh, very insightful conversation, very touching and tender to hear about the processes that you and others have made to have a direct connection to what's going on in the real lives of real employees and how you both were the, uh, the spark that ignited you know, uh, the CEO pledge around that and also the impact that it's had on the employees and your ability to grow and have a better contribution to all those that work with and for you. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate you. Scott, thank you. Thanks for all that you're doing and uh, appreciate it. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>